Really glad you're here. Uh, before we dive into the message, a couple of things let me make you aware of. Our church uh, had a very successful food drive to help replenish the stocks of United Ministries. And in, not only did we do that at different grocery stores, we were also able to contribute about $2,700 uh, for them to just have on hand to help feed the hungry. Um, and also, because of your generosity, we were able to direct 200 I'm not 200, $695,000, no, hold it, $625,000, it was a lot of money. We were able to direct that much money toward our Pacala building project, which reduces the amount of money that we're gonna have to borrow. So thank you for being a generous church, and thanks be to God for all that he's doing uh, through you to help impact our community and our world. So thank you very much. Um, now, maybe like me, you got a Christmas card that said Happy Holidays or Merry Christmas. Some of them were a little more New Year's oriented and said something like, may you have peace in the new year. And I always wonder what that means for people when they wish you peace for the new year. Um, what kind of peace do you think people really want when they say, may you have peace in the new year? So I did a little Google research and kind of like a late night talk show host, I came up with five things five different kinds of peace that people are looking for in the new year. So number five, fifth kind of peace that people are looking for is financial peace. Now, not the same as the group that we're starting about financial peace, but people basically are looking to be relieved of financial stress. They want some more money. Um, they want to be able to live without that tension, that financial tension that occurs. Uh, number four, people are looking for political peace. Uh, they get tired of hearing about all the different political division going on in our country. I don't know if you followed the news coming out of Washington this week, but even political parties are divided. You know, there are 331 million Americans, and that means there are 331 of us who know better how to run the country than everybody else. And so there's a lot of political tension. People just want there to be a political peace. And what we really, I think, are saying is if everyone would just see it my way, the world would be better. Uh, the third kind of peace people want, family peace, family peace. Uh, if you have ever had a two-year-old and a four-year-old in the same house, don't they just always play nice together all the time? Yeah, no, no, that didn't happen. Hey, and some of you are saying, well, maybe when they get older, <laughs> wait till they're 14 and 16. They won't even acknowledge each other's existence. And now, now maybe that's not really where your family stress is. Maybe it's more like you're, you're really tired of your dad being so controlling or you're really just kind of fed up with your mom being so needy and she calls you all the time. People want family peace. And what they really mean is they want everybody in their family just to calm down. You get that. Um, there's a second kind of peace is really connected to the third kind of peace and that is marital peace. Marital peace. Now, if you're married, you're going to have conflict. Okay, that's a healthy part of marriage. But noted uh, Christian pastor and author Tim Keller says, what's happened, particularly in the Western world, is we have made an idol of romantic love. What does he mean by that? In other words, we think if I can just find that perfect person, you know, that person who will cook and who will clean and who will rub my feet at night, and who will tell me that, you know, even though I've lost all my hair and I'm a little chubby, that, that I am still their ideal mate. Then all my problems will be solved. 
And if that's your idea, that if you can just find the right person, I want to tell you, good luck. Because that person doesn't really exist. Uh, just here's the reality about marriage. Imperfect person marries imperfect person, and they cannot together make a perfect marriage. So there has to be something else that goes on, something else that, that helps that marital bond. But a lot of people just think, well, if I'm not having peace in this relationship, I must have married the wrong person, instead of maybe saying, hey, how do we as a couple find peace? And of course, the last piece that people are looking for, if you watched Miss Congeniality, you know this one, world peace. Everybody's looking for world peace. And we all want there to be peace in Ukraine. We want there to be peace in North Korea, not to fire any more missiles toward Japan or toward us. Uh, I think particularly in our community, we'd really like for there to be world peace so people wouldn't have to go TDY nearly as often. We want world peace. Uh, do you think we're gonna get it? Here's the really interesting thing. Human beings are not good at world peace. We constantly seem to be fighting war after war after war because nations believe that they can get something if they conquer another nation, another uh, nationality, another group of people. So if this is the kind of peace that we want, but let's face it, it's pretty hard to come by, maybe we ought to change the question. What kind of peace do we actually need? Not the peace we want. What kind of peace do we actually need? So Jesus, on the night before he was crucified, had an extended conversation with his disciples, his friends. One of them, John, wrote that conversation down. And in the, in the, the, the first part of the conversation, Jesus talks about a different kind of peace. And we're gonna look at this one verse that encapsulates what Jesus is talking about, John 14, 27. John 14, 27. And here's what Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Would you read this verse with me? And, and would you read it like not, not like it's Sunday morning and don't, don't read it, peace I leave with you. Let's read it as if this is some of the best news we've ever heard. Let's go. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. My friends, that is good news. That Jesus actually wants you to have peace in your life. Well now, what does he mean by that? What does it mean to have peace? Just like we encourage you to memorize Romans uh, 15, 13 last year, so that we could talk about hope, this year we're gonna talk about peace a lot because I think if Jesus' followers truly had the peace of Jesus, we could change the world. People would look at us and say, I want what you've got. So what is this, how do we get it? Well, first of all, we've gotta go back and understand what it meant in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, most people thought peace, especially Greeks and Romans, they thought peace was the absence of conflict and the presence of prosperity. Because if you didn't have conflict, that meant that you were going to be able to grow your crops, get some more money, you would have prosperity. Sounds a little bit like our list, doesn't it? So the disciples of Jesus, the men who were in the room with him, they would have been very familiar with what was known as Pax Romana. Some of you remember that from school, Roman peace. 
But it was not peace the way we think. It was peace that happened because Rome would conquer a territory and then they would enforce their will with the point of a sword. Does that sound like peace to you? So Jesus is talking about something different. Why does the world not seem to be able to give us the peace we want? Noted scholar D.A. Carson uh, says this, the world cannot give peace. There is sufficient hate, selfishness, bitterness, malice, anxiety, and fear to swamp every attempt at peace. So we have to start understanding that if we want peace from Jesus, we cannot look to the world to get it. And most of you know this. You, you probably even experienced this. You sat down at Christmas dinner and everything was going okay and you were kind of holding your breath and then all of a sudden your uncle Oscar speaks up and says he doesn't really think man landed on the moon and he thinks all Democrats are crazy or all Republicans are crazy depending on what your family does. And it's like watching a roller coaster crest that top hill and you think here we descend into the madness. Did anybody experience that? Don't point. Did anybody experience that at Christmas? I mean, when the crazy uncle comes and he's kind of self-centered and he's got anxiety and he just wants to share it with somebody? Or maybe that was you, right? So what did Jesus really mean? Well, the word that best encapsulates Jesus' understanding of peace is the Hebrew word shalom. Now that may be the only Hebrew words you've ever heard of. It's a real important word. And it means a deep sense of well-being. And that's the peace that Jesus offers. It is not peace dependent on external circumstances. This is a peace that comes inside your soul because Jesus is there. That's the peace that Jesus wants you to have. Now Jesus here is talking like he's giving an inheritance. My peace I live with you, leave with you because after all he's about to, to die on the cross. And I can't help but wonder if this is one of the moments when the disciples thought he was a little crazy. Because after all, this whole evening has been disorienting for them. Uh, Judas has, has left mysteriously. Uh, they've heard the rumors about how upset the Jewish authorities are and how the Romans are not real happy with Jesus either. And, and in the middle of the Passover meal, which they all knew, Jesus interrupted it to add bread and a cup. And they're just going, what's going on? And now Jesus is talking about peace. This isn't a time for peace. This is a time for us to be pretty nervous and anxious. Did you ever wonder how Jesus could have prayed his way through in the garden and then had such peace before the Jewish authorities and before Pilate and even a peace when he went to the cross. He had this deep sense of well-being in his soul. So Jesus is about giving people the peace they need, the peace of the soul. Now we often talk and refer to Dallas Willard, um, a Christian philosopher who gave us a great definition of the soul. Your soul is the operating system of your life. Just like your computer system has an operating system, uh, so your soul has an operating system. And Dallas has given us a helpful model based on biblical teaching that your soul has four components. And we've got a diagram that illustrates that. At the very center is your will, your heart, this is where you make decisions. 
And then the next circle out is your mind. That's where you have thoughts and feelings. Then you have your body where you have appetites and desires. And then the outer ring is your relationships, your social world, how you interact with people. And all of that together encompasses your soul. These relate to each other. And what if you had peace in every part of your soul? What would your life be like? Well, let's unpack that. Let's start with your heart. Your heart is where you make decisions. What if you could make decisions and have peace about them? Anybody here struggle with what to get somebody for Christmas? Yeah, especially the person who has everything. What do you get them? Or, or maybe the person who asked for something and you can't afford what they asked for. Yeah, that, so, so that requires a decision. And the reason decisions are so difficult is because every decision gives direction. We'll say this again, every decision gives direction. That's why some of you feel so much tension in your life. You make a decision, I'm going to lose weight in January. You make another decision, fudge looks great. <laughs> tension. That's why life seems to go nowhere because you're making decisions without a clear reference point. So how do you get peace about your decisions? The best way is to get a reference point. Jesus is the best reference point. So learn to pray, Jesus, what decision do you want me to make? And some of you are going like, does Jesus really have time to get down in that kind of minutia? I mean, isn't he busy running the world? This is the great thing about worshiping an infinite God. He has time emotional space and thought that he can give you. Now this is probably gonna be specific to every one of you. Some of you struggle with some things. Others of you don't struggle with those things. I am the kind of person I have to pray before I order off a menu. Lord, I'm about to make a decision about what I eat. Show me the right decision. And he does. Now I do what a lot of you do, right? I don't like that decision, Lord. I like this decision better. It's fried. <laughs> it's not enough to ask Jesus to show you the right decision, then you have to follow through. You actually say, okay, you're my reference point, Jesus. I'm gonna trust that this salad is your will for me, and I'm not trying to be funny here. Your salad is your will for me, I'm gonna eat it, because I know you've got something in mind. See how that works? Now let me tell you the really good news. This may be one of the reasons you should become a Christian. If you make a bad decision, which all of you will, your heavenly father still loves you. Your heavenly father still loves you, no matter how many bad decisions you make. This is amazing to me. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son? Remember that story in the Bible? How many bad decisions did the prodigal son make? Yeah, oh, dad, give me my inheritance now. I'm gonna go off to a far land. I'm gonna waste my money in riotous living. Hey, now the only option for my survival is to live with the hogs and the pigs. And now, uh, okay, I finally have made a good decision. I'm coming home. How does the father in the story react? 
He stands on the porch and he says, you've got a lot of nerve coming back here after all you've done. No, that's how some of your fathers react. Our heavenly father, like the father in the story, runs to us, welcomes us, calls for a robe and a ring, kill the fatted calf, and we're gonna have a party. So even if you make bad decisions, your heavenly father still loves you. What kind of security would that give you? What kind of peace would that give you? See, this is the peace Jesus really wants you to have, to use him as a reference point and to know that even if you make a bad decision, his love is still there. Let's go to the next string. This is your mind where you have thoughts and feelings, and they do a dance back and forth. A lot of you have experienced it because you're like me. Your visa bill comes on the third of the month. And so on the third of the month, I opened my visa bill, and I looked at the number, and I had a thought. My thought was, that's a big number. And then I had a feeling, sick to my stomach, right? And maybe that was your, you know, you kind of like get anxious, you can feel it in your stomach, and, and that's part of your mind sending a message to your stomach going, we need to be upset about this. Maybe you feel the tension in your chest, maybe you feel anger, maybe you're saying, hey, I wanna go wave this in somebody's face and saying, how could you spend this much money? You see how thoughts and feelings interact? They do this dance in your mind all the time. Now, if you are more of a thinker, your mind ever just get caught in a loop? And you think over and over and over and over about the same thing. And you, some nights you just lie in bed and you can't go to sleep because you're just like a hamster on a wheel. If you're a feeling person, you ever get bogged down in your feelings? You ever just get to the point where it's like, man, I feel like my feelings are in control of me instead of me being in control of my feelings. What if there was peace in your mind between your thoughts and your feelings? You remember this old hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus? All our sins and griefs to bear. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge, take it to the Lord in prayer. What would happen in your life if you actually prayed through your feelings? God, I am depressed. I don't know why I'm depressed. Would you help me understand why I'm depressed? I just can't seem to shake it. I can't seem to get out of it. And what do you think God will say? God may give you some hope and say, look, 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 lift up your eyes to the hills. I'm still God, I'm still in control. God may say to you, lift up your eyes and call the doctor. God may say, I want you, you're depressed. I want you to put something in your life that brings you joy. I can't think of anything. God, show me then what, what would add joy. See how that works? Now, now, for you thinkers, when you're just caught in that loop, what would happen if you prayed about your thoughts and you said, now God, you actually understand my world better than I do. You understand my thoughts. You have knowledge I don't have. You are the expert in everything. So I'm gonna give this to you. Now, if you're like me, my thoughts a lot of times will go around work and around work projects, or around things I've got to do. Um, right now, I'm dealing with an issue at the ranch. We're trying to do a water project to put um, uh, tubs, uh, big, big uh, water troughs in all the pastures so that we can more effectively use, utilize our grass. Isn't this fascinating to you? 
I have laid awake at night wondering where do we put, the, where do we put these big concrete water troughs that hold about 2,000 gallons. And I've just gone, doo, 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 doo. And, 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 and I mean, and this is embarrassing to admit because I'm a pastor, I'm supposed to know, you pray about everything. Finally, it dawns on me, pray. Jesus, this sounds so stupid. I know you're busy keeping the universe on track, but could you tell me where to put the water troughs? And guess what? Jesus is an expert on where the water troughs go. He's an expert about everything that occupies your thoughts. What if you prayed through it? And by the way, after I prayed through it, I kind of got a clear picture of where everything needs to go. And I think it's gonna save us money. And if it doesn't, we're gonna take up another offering. Sorry, all right. Jesus wants you to have this kind of peace, a peace in your mind. Now the next circle out is your body. And your body is the home of your appetites and desires. God created you to have appetites and desires. That's how you know how to eat when you're hungry. But God did not create you so that appetites and desires can rule your life. See, if an appetite or a desire starts to rule your life, we call that an addiction. An addiction. You can be addicted to, yeah, uh, liquor, you can be addicted to uh, porn, you can be addicted to, to nicotine, you can be addicted to uh, drugs, you, you can also be addicted to sex, to food, to work. You can have desires that originate in your mind and then they get expressed out through your body. Well, what if you had peace? What if those desires and those addictions, those appetites didn't control your life? Um, the Oxford movement was a movement that began late 1800s, early 1900s, and they developed a system of discipline that they call steps. And out of the Oxford movement was born uh, the 12-step movement, which we now think of in terms of Alcoholics Anonymous, Sex Anonymous, Overeaters Anonymous, these different groups. Okay, the, the principles are biblical principles. You can hear them, you can hear them. So, so what are the first three of these 12 steps? The first, number one, you admit you're powerless over your desires and appetites. You admit it and you say, I've got a problem. This is an issue. Hey, the best and fastest way to find out if somebody's really an addict, that they're enslaved to their, their, their desires and appetites is when they deny that there's a problem. I can quit anytime I want to. I don't have a problem. Really? Well, then quit today. Well, tomorrow's better. So you gotta admit it, you gotta admit, I messed up. Hey, this is the same thing as confessing sin, right? But it's also important we remember, confessing sin is not just saying, Lord, I sinned. It is also saying, I am powerless to stop it. Because if you could, you would've. And that's a pretty good sign that there's something blocking the power of God in your life. All right, so the second step is you acknowledge that only God has the power you lack and you need to restore you to, insan to sanity, not to insanity. God can restore you to sanity. Because let me tell you, desires and appetites out of control will make you insane. Not, not even in the bounds of normal. I, I, was, I was talking with a fellow struggler and we just admitted that there's some, there's some foods we can't have in our house. We just can't. 
It make, they make us crazy. Um, my, you know about peanut butter balls, sometimes they're called Buckeyes. My wife made those at Christmas. And they drive me nuts. I'll be lying at bed at night and I hear them call my name. Now, is that the definition of sanity? That some inanimate food can call my name and I will have to say, mm, I gotta get up and, and just kind of walk around a little bit. My knee's hurting me, my knee's hurting me. I need to stretch it out, walk over here to this refrigerator. Oh, peanut butter balls. And I realize I don't wanna trigger anybody who has food addictions, but I'm just trying to confess, folks, I get it. And I wanna tell you the only way you get restored to sanity is to admit that only God can restore you to sanity. And here's the third of these steps. You make a decision to turn your will and your life over to the care of God. You say, God, I can't, but you can, and I'm gonna let you. I'm gonna turn my life over to you because I'm not smart enough, powerful enough, I, I, I don't have the inner willpower to do this. Now, now, can I just tell you the truth that you probably don't want to know about yourself? There's probably some desire, some appetite in your body that runs your life. You may not know it. You may not be able to name it. But almost everybody I know has a habit, a hang-up, an addiction they have to fight. What if Jesus could bring you peace? This requires surrender, and I think that's why a lot of us don't do it. And I believe the way you start God's power flowing in your life is you surrender your life to Jesus. And you, you, you have to have a starting point for this, and so that's why we often talk about a model prayer. A model prayer is saying something like, Heavenly Father, I confess I've made a mess of my life, I have sinned, you have the power to forgive me and make me whole. Excuse me, please forgive my sins, Take charge of my life, and I will commit to follow you. That's the starting point. And then God's peace begins to flow into you. And your life changes. And this is the peace Jesus wants you to have. Now, the outermost ring, the outermost ring is your relationships. Now, this is congregational participation, so if you're watching at Bishopville or Pacala online, I want you to raise your hand if this is true for you, okay? How many of you have ever had conflict with a member of your family, someone you're married to, a friend, a boss, a coworker, or somebody you just met in Walmart? How many of you have ever had that conflict? Okay, good, good. Now, if somebody next to you didn't raise their hand, wake them up. And here's the interesting thing. I went to school a long time. I never had one class in how to resolve conflict with somebody I was in a relationship with. They never taught me that in school. So what I did is I just did what my family did. And what my family did is they dealt with everything with humor. So if you had a conflict with somebody, you would use sarcasm and humor. And then, by the way, when you marry someone whose family doesn't resolve conflict that way, it doesn't go well. It just doesn't go well. What if you could have peace in your relationships? And some of you right now are saying, it's not possible. You don't know the people I have to deal with. Yeah, I do. They come to the other service. I got it. 
Let me put the question to you this way. What if you learn to love people like Jesus? What if when you had a, a difficult encounter, a tension in a relationship in a marriage with your kids, what if you actually prayed and you say, Lord, help me love this person, this child, my spouse, like you love them? Would you have more peace? You know, maybe one of the first things Jesus would say to you is, okay, you've got to pull back and actually understand them. You've got to be curious. You've got to actually ask them some questions. Paul actually wrote a poem about this in 1 Corinthians 13. We often use this at, at weddings, and it is about marriage love, but it's really about love in all relationships. Paul said love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. What if you loved like that? Would you have peace, greater peace in relationships? See, I, I have to sit in meetings sometimes, not so much church meetings, but in other areas of my life, I have to sit in meetings and I have to actually say to myself, I pray, Lord, <clears throat> help me remember love's not easily angered, love's not easily angered, love's not easily angered, Lord, love's not easily angered. Sometimes you have to pray that way. When my, my, my children, who are all grown, and when they're all around, Apparently, when all of my children reach the age of 25, now they know everything. And I have to say, I have to pray while sometimes they're talking to me and say, love is patient, 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 love is patient. Yeah. Some of you, you're saying, is that what my dad is really thinking when I'm trying to talk to him? Yes. Yes, I promise. Just think about what could happen in your life if you had a feeling of being centered in Jesus and you weren't just reacting to what other people were doing, but you were actually processing it thinking, okay, this person's really pushing my buttons. How would Jesus love them right now? You hear how different this is than the way of the world? Do you hear how different this kind of peace is? Now, I want to be sure that we're clear on this. You cannot have the peace you need until the king of peace reigns in your heart. And that's why some of you, your first step today is to pray that model prayer that I just talked about, where you actually start the relationship with Jesus and he becomes the king who reigns over your life. He's in control, not you. And that's the way you start the peace. Now, a lot of us have prayed that prayer. We are followers of Jesus, but we're not really living in peace. Why? because we're not taking everything to the Lord in prayer. We're not spending time in his word. We're not in groups where we can be encouraged. We're not learning his word and we're not sitting under good teaching so that we can actually learn the way of Jesus. This is what we have to do. Jesus says, I'm not trying to give you what the world offers you. My peace I give to you. But it's really interesting how he finishes out the verse. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. The word trouble means to agitate, like a, a washing machine. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to live such a countercultural way that your peace internally is greater than the conflict externally. And, and this might be a helpful prayer for you to start the day. You might want to write this down. Heavenly Father, Please give me the peace I need in my soul.
please give me the peace I need in my soul. This is a picture of a guy named Alan Langham. Uh, you can tell he's a pretty big guy. Uh, it came in handy for him being a big guy like that because he became a professional rugby player in England. Uh, if you've ever watched rugby, it's a pretty rough game. You need some big guys like this. Um, Alan grew up in a real dysfunctional family. His father abandoned the family. His mom was really uh, not present. Uh, he got in fights with his siblings and, and pretty much just was that kid who was always in trouble. You know that kid? And it was because he, like, like a lot of kids in that situation, he had so much hatred, so much anger. And that worked to his advantage on the rugby field because he was angry at everybody. You know, a lot of times he would level people out. But while he was playing professional rugby, he got involved with a criminal underworld in England. And in that underworld, he became what is known as an enforcer. So if you owed the underworld money, what did he do? He paid you a visit. You may have gotten kneecapped, you may have gotten beaten up. Alan was the guy. He got arrested, you know, he got sprung from jail. And this was kind of the pattern. He was just a very violent, angry man. Finally, he committed a crime, uh, and it, it was longer than just a night or two in jail. He got imprisoned for a period of time, and he stabbed the other inmates, he attacked them, and he got moved to solitary confinement in a maximum security prison in London. And isolated, he had to really face himself, and he just fell into this well of despair, and he decided to commit suicide. And he, he decided he would pray before he committed suicide. So he, he got down on his knees and he began, to, he began to cry. Because see, really, when a guy, an adult male is angry like that, here's what you know. Every adult angry male has a little wounded boy inside. So he just really started crying, a little boy inside of him started to cry and he's, he said, God, I don't even know if you exist, but if you're real, I want there to be a dove in the window. It's the only light he has to the outside. So he finishes the prayer on his knees, he looks up, there's no dove in the window. Great, he thinks. And he decides, okay, I'm gonna go to sleep and the next day I'll kill myself. Gets in bed, goes to sleep, Next morning he wakes up, he looks up in the window, there's a dove. And he began to feel the despair lift out of his life. Every prisoner is given a Bible, he started reading it, he started praying, and finally he got on his knees again and he balled up, he, this is his words, not mine, he balled up all of his anger, he said, and he threw it at the cross. And he said, when I did that and surrendered to him, I felt peace like never before. Alan became a model prisoner. He got out, he started a prison ministry. He also started a ministry to troubled teens who were going through the same things he had gone through. He eventually even reconciled with his father who had abandoned him and his siblings who he had attacked and his own children 
who he had been forbidden to contact. It took time. But you know what happened for Alan? He finally got the peace he needed. The peace of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the peace of Jesus is what we all need. So will you please bring that peace to us? For those who've never invited Jesus into their lives, I pray they do so today. For those, Father, who, who have, but they're just living such chaotic lives, let Jesus be their north star. Guide us, bring peace to our hearts and our minds, our bodies and our relationships. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.